Pilgrim Talk, Theology for Sojourners on the Way. I'm John Sweat, and this is my co-host, Spencer Grusing. Hey, hey. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the Bible. Beginning a, We're beginning here a two-part series. And in this episode, part one, we're going to discuss the status, shape, and the scope of Scripture. Or, or to put it uh, a different way, we're asking, what is Scripture? And then in our, in our next episode, we're going to discuss the importance of studying Scripture and how to do just that. But before we get started, I want to remind you to rate us on your favorite podcatcher. Share this episode with your friends. Feel free to leave any comments or questions uh, on our Facebook page. And uh, when you leave a comment and you give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, it's a tremendous help. So please, if you enjoy the content, show us some love by doing that for us. But let's get started. Spencer, why don't you kick us off by reading 2 Timothy 2.15 and then 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Absolutely. All right, so 2 Timothy 2.15 is, uh, tells us, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then... Uh, Go forward a chapter to Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen, and Paul tells us all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we're gonna let's zoom in real quick on that first text, Second uh, Timothy three sixteen. We'll look at in a bit, but Paul commands young Timothy, this young pastor, to, um, and I think I'm reading out of the NAS here, so it's a little bit different than what just Spence read, but that's okay. Uh, it's, he, see, he tells young Timothy, he gives him the command, he says, be diligent. To do what? To present yourself approved to who? To God. And then if you're not quite getting what Paul is getting at here, he gives you a picture to illustrate what it means to present yourself approved to God. He says, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth or rightly dividing the word of truth or to really make it really literal, make straight the word of truth. And so Paul is commanding this young pastor to be diligent and presenting himself approved to God through the way in which he handles the word of truth in his ministry. And while not all Christians are young pastors as Timothy, Christians are, I believe, commanded to study the scriptures. And therefore, when we talk about the scriptures, when we interpret the scriptures for ourselves or for others, if we're discipling someone, we need to accurately, carefully, and rightly, in accordance with its God-intended meaning, handle and interpret Scripture with great care. And so we, too, want to be as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. The workman, uh, someone who works hard, who is a diligent worker, has no reason to be ashamed before their employer. And taking that analogy to the study of Scripture, if we are diligent and careful and prayerful and dependent upon the Spirit, we too do not need to be ashamed. We can be approved to God as one who rightly handles the word of truth. 
But I mean, we, we could give uh, lots of reasons why it's important to handle the word of truth correctly. But Spencer, why don't you give us some examples of abuses of scripture or poor uses of verses? Yeah. So, I mean, when we're, when we're referring to like poor uses of scripture or uh, using it to justify sin, um, you know, we, we're looking uh, at certain points and events in history where um, people have uh, misinterpreted scripture and misapplied scripture uh, to justify um, a selfish and or evil end. Um, so, you know, couple easy examples um, on some uh, egregious sin in history would be slavery, lynching, segregation, uh, right? The Crusades. Um, aging back even further into ancient history would be something like polygamy. Um, and uh, additionally, I, I know a, a really hot button, hot button topic lately has been um, pacifism. And uh, whether or not the Christian has um, a right or obligation to uh, defend himself or defend his family, um, you know, we could go on and on and on um, just <laughs> with how bad uh, people have, have used scripture to justify um, evil things. Um, so, to give maybe some some group identifiers um you know uh, groups of people um we would just refer to them as cults who um normally abuse scripture um and and that abuse of scripture is central to their belief system um so to give a couple examples we're talking uh roman catholicism jehovah's witnesses mormonism black hebrew israelites uh, right so all of these groups are referred to as cults because, uh, again, their abuse of scripture is central to their dogma, um, to their to their central uh, tenets of their belief system. Um, so, um, to dive into scripture itself, um, and and this doesn't necessarily relate to cults. Uh, in fact, um, living here in America, we uh, we hear a couple of these passages. All the time, even from people you know who we would not even um, consider to be believers, right? Um, so, uh, one great example, uh, especially in our uh, relativistic culture, uh, is Matthew seven one: "Judge not." Right? So, don't be judgy. Why are you judging me? Uh, don't judge my lifestyle. Only God can judge me. Uh, and people use Matthew seven one all the time. Um, to say, <laughs> you know, you're not allowed to judge me. You're not allowed to make any kind of um, judgment about my lifestyle or my actions or my thinking. When in fact, uh, Matthew 7 1 is not um, giving a blanket order to never cast judgment um, on something. Um, in fact, Jesus uh, tells us himself to use right judgment, um, to give an example. Um, John, can you think of any other uh, abuse texts? Yeah, so there's the famous one, and I, we see signs more and more these days. Uh, you know, since God's president didn't get reelected, President Donald Trump. <laughs> I obviously say that tongue in cheek, um, but uh, you know, people will put Second Chronicles seven fourteen in their yards. If my people who are called by my name, right, uh, if they'll turn to me, I'll heal 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 their land. <laughs> 
Listen, brothers and sisters who live in America, that text is not for our nation. That was for a theocratic Israel, God's special people. Certainly, there can be a principle where we can pray for repentance and reformation in our land. But I fear many of you are just ripping this Second Chronicles text right out of passage as if America is God's new Jerusalem. Uh, I see another one uh, often. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, yeah. Philippians 3.14. Uh, the context of that verse, Paul is talking about, hey, whether I have a lot or little, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? So I see these bodybuilders, Mr. <laughs> Olympia, who, who uh, they get, hey, listen, I follow them on Instagram. It gets close to the Olympia. They're citing Bible verses like nobody's business, right? <laughs> They're posting nude pics of themselves all year round, but it gets near like five weeks out from the Olympia. They're posting a picture of the beach, with the verse Philippians three fourteen, I can do all things. Hey man, I'm gonna win the Olympia. I can do all things, right? That is an abuse of that text. Yeah. Um, another one to close, maybe with these examples: is Matthew eighteen twenty, where two or three are gathered, I am there in their midst. Oh yeah, brothers and sisters, listen. That isn't talking about a service that is poorly attended at your church, and you're going to encourage people because there's five and you're like, hey, well, two or three are gathered, brother. Jesus is here. That, that text actually is about uh, church discipline. Again, yes, if there's only two of you in the room, Jesus is there. But quoting Matthew 18, 20 to encourage people with that, that, that text has nothing to do with that. But I guess what we're getting at here in these examples, right? We have uh, examples in history of the Bible being used to justify great wickedness. We have Bible-wielding imposters, cults and false religions who use the Bible, or at least part of the Bible, as their religious text, and yet the things that they say that the Bible teaches have nothing to do with the revelation of God in Scripture. And then we have random, spurious texts that are abused. And Edward White says this, he says, There's no folly, no God-dishonoring theology, no iniquity, no sacerdotal purity for which chapter and verse may not be cited, by an enslaved intelligence. And what Edward Wright is getting at there is you can make the Bible say whatever you want. You, you can abuse Scripture and make it say whatever you want. And that is why it is vitally important for the Christian, and especially for pastors, to accurately handle the Word of God, which means it's more than just quoting a few verses. And then saying true things that have nothing to do with those verses. Accurately handling the Bible is drawing out the text's God-intended meaning. And this is why expository preaching, verse-by-verse preaching through books of the Bible, should be the primary diet of the church. And this is why we and our Bible studies as individual Christians should be going through books of the Bible, understanding how those books fit together, how the themes fit together in those books. I'm not against the one random verse a day devotional where someone says really something beautiful and Christian-y after that verse. But we need to read the Bible in the way that God has given it to us. God has not given us a book full of random Christian truisms or isolated statements, or nor is it a self-help book, but rather God has revealed himself within this drama of redemption 
and particular books with particular themes fitting within the story of redemption in a particular way. And we ought to study scripture that honors that structure and that story. So the question you ask then, our listeners, the question you're asking, I'm sure, is, well, then how do we read and interpret scripture rightly? Right? You're hanging off the edge of your seat. You're, you're, you are anxious to know the answer to that question. And it's a good question to ask. It's fundamental to the Christian faith is knowing God, and the Christian grows in their knowledge of God through the study of scriptures. But before we answer that, the how question, we need to understand the what. What is scripture? Because if we understand what scripture is, it will shape and mold the way that we approach it, the way that we handle it, the way that we think about it. So let's talk about what scripture is. What is it? And first, let's begin by the, the status of scripture. A great place for y'all to go that's going to say far more than we could say here is the Second London Confession. You can, uh, you can find a copy of this confession online. You can buy a copy of it, a nice leather-bound one on Amazon. But chapter one, the confession begins with this great statement of what Scripture is. And so I would encourage you to go there and read that after you're done listening to this. But let's look at the status of Scripture. What, what is Scripture, Spencer? Uh, scripture is God's Word, uh, the Bible. And, and why, is, why is it necessary that we have God's Word? Yeah, so the self-revelation of God, or this is a fancy way of saying God's revelation to us, is the heart of Christianity. Um, if there's no revelation from God, there can be no religion, um, because we know God uh, based off of his revelation to us. And so Christianity is either an illusion or it is grounded upon the belief in the existence, revelation, and knowledge of God. All religions have their dogmas, uh, which are their beliefs that are based upon some sort of claimed revelation from their deity or their gods. And if God is not spoken, then Christianity is untrue and uh, it's surely an illusion, it's false. Um, nobody can say anything uh, positively true about it. Um, but God has revealed himself in nature and in scripture. And this revelation is knowable, it's objective, and it is binding on every single person. Absolutely. And so if God has, well, we, we need God to reveal himself, but and God has revealed himself clearly in both nature and scripture. And speaking of scripture in particular, the Bible tells us that the scripture is God's special self-revelation. It is inspired by God. The holy scriptures are inspired by God. They're breathed out by God. We get that from places like 2 Timothy 3.16. The scriptures are infallible, right? If the God who cannot change does not lie, the, who is the ultimate standard of truth, has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in a way that his revelation is infallible. It is without error. Um, and then the third thing is it cannot err, which is very similar. It's inerrant. It cannot err. It does not err, and it cannot err. Right. And when we say scripture, we mean, we mean the completed canon of the 66 books. So we're not lumping in uh, the Apocrypha. 
or the Lost Gospel, <laughs> the uh, Lost Gospels, or these other Gnostic Gospels that people find and try to uh, push into Scripture. Uh, Spencer, did the church uh, create the canon? Did the church get to decide which books were in and out? No, they did not. They discovered it. They discovered it. Absolutely. Yeah, they discovered it. Michael Kruger has done a lot of work on this, Dr. Michael Kruger of RTS. But the 66 books of Scripture were recognized by the church as the Word of God. But the Word of God's authority does not come from the recognition of the church. But rather, the Word of God's authority comes from the fact that it is a self-revelation of God. Therefore, it is the ultimate standard. And if we use any other standard outside of Scripture to validate Scripture as the Word of God, we are now making Scripture secondary to that standard. It is self-authenticating is what the uh, Reformers uh, would say about Scripture and what the Second London Confession says in that chapter that I referenced. The last thing we want to say about the nature of Scripture, right, it's inspired, infallible, and errant, inerrant. It is the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Scripture is one unified and organic story of redemption. Scripture is not a bunch of isolated Lego blocks that God decided to place together to give us some wise information. But rather, Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, and all of the weird stuff in between, all of the details and nuances and obscure things, all of that is part of one unified and organic story. And I use organic in the sense, think of a, think of a seed for an oak tree that is placed in the ground. And think of as that, that seed begins to grow and flourish and shoot up through the ground take root, and grow up into a large oak tree. That is what we see in the story of Scripture. We see the gospel promised early on in Genesis 3.15, and we see really the story of the gospel unfold slowly throughout the pages of Scripture all the way until the end to Revelation. So we've talked about the necessity of Revelation, right? And God has revealed himself. We've talked about the nature of Scripture itself, if this is what Scripture is, Spencer, what, what implications flow from this? What, where, where do we, as far as status, place Scripture? Yeah, you kind of already hit on it. Um, if Scripture is God's revelation to us, right, if it is the Word of God, if it originates with God, then there's no, it, it logically follows that it is the ultimate authority on spiritual matters. It is the ultimate authority on reality. And um, Scripture has demands in it for people. Scripture gives informs us of a proper way to live, of, of things that honor God and things that don't honor God. And because it's God's Word, because it's His self-revelation to us, it has its authority on us. Like it, it is authoritative to us. Whether we, we we feel like we want to obey it, whether we whether we want to recognize its authority. Um, and that that's definitely a conversation that's worth having, right? Is is um is, is talking through those things, right? So giving a defense of the faith and defending those those assumptions. But if the Bible truly is God's revelation, then it is without a doubt the ultimate authority 
Yeah, you know, you think of the famous bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But that bumper sticker is an error because God said it and that settles it, whether or not you believe it or not. Right. It's authoritative. That is a standard by which you're going to be held to. It is the standard over which uh, all matters sit underneath. This is not to say that Scripture speaks about everything, but all that Scripture speaks about uh, concerning the, the world, uh, the fact that human beings are made in the image of God, human beings are fallen in Adam and sinners in need of a Savior, the fact that uh, apart from the grace of the gospel in Jesus Christ, human beings cannot be saved. All of those things, the sanctity of life, we could go on and on. Scripture is authoritative and the ultimate standard, and it demands something of us. It is not like Shakespeare, where you can pick up Shakespeare. If you're moved, great. If you're not moved, just throw it in the trash and move on to something better like Lord of the Rings, right? Mm -hmm. you know, scripture demands something of us. Scripture, what does Scripture principally teach? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks. It says, Scripture principally teaches what man is to believe concerning God and what man's duty is or what, what God requires of man. And so scriptures, as we encounter the creator, the triune God in uh, his self-revelation, his word, it demands a response. It demands uh, repentance of our sin. It demands worship. And it demands then in return of experiencing the gospel then obedience as disciples amen briefly i just want to hit on this and we'll spend more time on this later but we need to talk about just briefly scripture status and its relationship to nature right scripture interprets nature god has revealed himself both in general and special revelation general revelation is clear it's authoritative and it's sufficient because it's one of God's forms of self-revelation. But Scripture is the interpretive lens given to the image of God in order to rightly interpret natural revelation. This then, I think, important is important because it places reason and service to faith. And why is that important, Spence? Why, why is it important that reason is in service to faith? So reason is in service to faith because reason unguided by faith may or may not arrive at true propositions. And so if Christianity is true, if, if scripture is God's word, right. And we, we truly believe it to be so, then it says true things about reality, whether or not we agree with those things or not. And, so my reason, right, so Spencer's reason needs to be guided by faith in order to arrive at true views and beliefs about reality, about God, about what God says about people, what God says about sin. Would you expound on that at all? Yeah, I would just say in fundamental to that, why is faith necessary? Because we live in God's world. Yeah. God has defined the facts to be what they are. And the reality, because of sin, there is no neutrality. Yep. People do not reason uh, from a blank uh, slate with no presuppositions. And the point is, if this is God's world and God has defined the facts to be what they are, then we uh, look at nature through the spectacles of faith. It is through the spectacles of faith that gives us the proper sight to interpret God's natural revelation. 
So no philosopher, no profound thinker can reason their way to God simply through general revelation. Right. Right. Natural revelation does not reveal God's work of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is why Calvin would say, he says this, speaking of the, the relationship between these two things, he says, just as, uh, just as old or bleary-eyed men and those with weak vision, if you thrust, thrust before them a most beautiful volume, even if they recognize it to be some sort of writing, yet can scarcely construe two words, but with the aid of spectacles will begin to read distinctly. So scripture, gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, having dispersed our dullness, clearly shows us the true God. And so that's why it's important, I think, to understand that scripture interprets nature. This isn't to say that nature reveals things. Uh, we're not saying that nature reveals things about God that are contrary or in addition to what scripture has revealed about God. Right. But we would say that because we are fallen, we need the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth of Scripture to us. And it is once we have been given the spectacles of faith, we can then rightly interpret Scripture and then rightly interpret God's world that he has placed us in and revealed himself to us through. So with that, let's go to the let's let's close our time by looking briefly at the shape of Scripture and the scope of Scripture. Spencer, Scripture has 66 books. Tons of different kinds of genre, uh, different human authors in whom the Holy Spirit worked through, uh, with different kinds of vocabulary, different uh, stylistic preferences, and yet there's a unity in Scripture. And what is the stru the structure within Scripture that uh, that holds this unity together? It is covenant. The idea is covenant. What is covenant, Spencer? It is essentially an agreement between God and man instituted by God. Yeah, so you went straight for the the biblical definition <laughs> of what we see. There are covenants yeah. between man and man, but yes, a binding agreement uh, between between God and man. And sometimes between uh, two parties. Between two parties, right. right. There are two covenants in particular in Scripture that play the the dominant role in the story of Scripture, um, at least uh, stylistically, uh, liter literarily, um, and that is the Old and New Covenants. In fact, the New Testament spends quite a time, quite a bit of time, in places like Hebrews 8, 2 Corinthians 4, Galatians 4, contrasting the Old and New Covenant, how they relate, what's different, why is the New Covenant better. Um, and this is why the early church actually divided the scriptures into two parts, calling it the Old and New Testaments, which comes from the Latin word testamentum, which which means to will or to covenant. Yep. So even our Bibles are uh, reflect this covenantal structure um, of scripture. And the, I, I, it's hard to show you this uh, through audio, but I could, we could look at the Old Covenant, and you could see the Old Covenant. Think of the Old Testament. You have the covenant established. Um, you have the covenant established in the law of the Old Testament. You have the covenant um, enforced in the prophets of the Old Testament. 
and you have the covenant um, enjoyed in the writings um, of the Old Testament. And you have a very similar structure um, in the New Testament with the new covenant being established in the Gospels. Then you have the covenant being uh, enforced um, in the Acts of the Apostles. And then you have the covenant being enjoyed or the covenant life in the epistles. But the very structure of Scripture is is covenantal. And um, maybe in a later episode we'll be able to flesh that out more uh, since there's a lot that we could not cover there. But (laughs) the idea is this. If you can get a hold of... Uh, if you can get a hold of this concept of covenant and the way that the various covenants in Scripture relate to one another and how they they uh, intersect with one another to to draw out this story of the gospel, it will it will help you tremendously and in rightly um, interpreting Scripture and how to read Scripture. Um, so if we're looking, that's the structure, and within that structure of covenant, there's this there's this dominant theme that runs this this thematic framework that runs throughout Scripture. What is what what theme is this that begins in seed form in the garden? Spins it shoots up in the Old Testament, it buds in the New Testament, and it comes to full bloom at the return of Christ. What theme is this? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, and in the kingdom of God, we could say. To borrow from Graham's Goldworthy, this is this is a summary, but it is the kingdom of God is God's um, God's rule over God's people and God's place. And I probably botched that a little bit, but that's that's pretty close to what he's getting at there. So if we were to break down scripture with this theme, we have the kingdom lost in the garden at the fall. But then the kingdom is promised again through the seed of Abraham. And that promise is then expanded through a nation. And then that promise is is honed in on one particular person, King David. And it is through David's seed that a greater David will come, a son of David, who will sit on the throne of forever and who will establish God's kingdom and will rule with righteousness, justice, and truth. That kingdom then is not only promised in the Old Testament, but it's pictured in the Old Covenant. We get a glimpse of what that kingdom is like. Then we see the kingdom established at the coming of Jesus Christ. He says, what does he say? He says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. hand. Yeah, throughout the Gospels, Jesus says things like, hey, if you see the Son of Man casting out demons with the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. But there's, there's an already reality for the kingdom, but there's a not yet. Righteousness and justice are not what rules. Not primarily. You only see that expressed in God's church. But we still wait a day when the kingdom is consummated, and that is at the second coming of our Lord, where sin, death, and Satan will be eternally dealt with. So we've got the structure of Scripture. It's it's held together by covenant, mm-hmm. and out of its covenantal structure blooms this theme of kingdom. What is the center of Scripture? And to answer that, Spence, will you read for us that text in Luke 24? Yes, absolutely. So we're going to look at a couple of uh, verses here. Uh, The first are verses 25 through 27 in Luke chapter 24. And it says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And uh, we'll pick up again in uh, verse 44, going through verse 47. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus tells these mourning disciples on the road to Emmaus that they have failed to read the scriptures. They have failed to understand that what they just saw happen to the Messiah was was long spoken about in the Old Testament. And Jesus goes much further than that, and he didn't just say that the Old Testament promises or speaks about the Messiah. Jesus goes on to say, hey, the whole Old Testament scriptures are centered upon me. And you should have known. He says, you should have known that what you just saw happen was going to happen. Yep. And then he appears later in those later verses, in verses 44 to 47, it says something very similar. And this is the point, and we could go to other texts, texts like John 5, 39 through 57. Jesus Christ is the fulcrum upon which the whole Bible pivots. Do you know what a fulcrum is, Spence? It is like a mechanism that swings back and forth, but there's, there's a center point that it's hinged to. Exactly. So think of like a seesaw. That center point in which the seesaw rests, and as there's weight on one side, the seesaw goes up, and as there's weight on the other side, the seesaw goes goes down. That fulcrum point on which that seesaw pivots, that is a fulcrum, and that is what Jesus Christ is, the Bible. Revelation, the revelation in the Scripture moves to and from Jesus, right? The Old Testament is the gospel promised. The New Testament is the gospel established. And so Jesus Christ is the scope of Scripture, the target or the goal in which all Scripture moves towards. And this means that the Scriptures are about the glory of God and the establishment of His kingdom through covenant by Jesus Christ for the salvation of the church. Now, I can imagine someone saying, okay, Jesus, Jesus is the center of Scriptures, so what? Why, why is that vital, uh, Spence, for, for us to see that? How does that impact the way that we read Scripture? Yeah, I mean, so if we read Scripture in, I'll, I'll say, in, in a self-centered way, I'm simply reading my Bible in the morning. I'm, I'm opening up to Psalms or Proverbs or uh, one of the epistles to see what it what it says for me and how I can be successful today. Right. So so what is God telling me today? And and this is this is partly why we have so many abuse texts that we were talking about earlier. Um like I in Philippians when, when Paul says I can do all things through Christ, right? If if I read that self centeredly, I'm only thinking about, okay, well, whatever hardships come today, I, I can get through it. Whatever competitions I have today, I can get through it. Right. And that that's not necessarily untrue, right? So that text certainly applies to those things in some sense, but because Jesus is the goal of Scripture, because He is the target in which all of Scripture aims at, that's going to 
really impact what we walk away from. You know, if, if I'm sitting down in the morning for five minutes with my Bible. Yeah, absolutely. It's this sort of, uh, rather than let's talk about being gospel-centered, let's talk about being Christ-centered, yeah. right? And the way that we read scripture and the way that we do uh, ministry and serve in the church, the way that a uh, pastor teaches and preaches, um, it is literally thinking about the Christian life in terms of all of Christ for all of life. Right. To go back to the very first episode, we quoted from Michael Horton a quote about this idea of pilgrim theology. And his point is uh, Jesus is the main character. So as we partake in this pilgrimage to the heavenly city, and as we enter into the drama of scripture, we do we do participate. But we're we're like uh, we're we're like those those uh, those people in movies where they're they're there in the crowd they're participating but it's a quick shot of them but the shot's not really about them they're there in the shot but they're not not, not they're not the main character so we participate in the drama of scripture and that doesn't mean we don't ask the questions of how this applies to me but if we go to how does this apply to me before what does this say about Christ we have made a fundamental misstep in how we read scripture yeah. And so maybe just summarizing this, we would say that covenant is the structure of Scripture, right? Covenant is the husk from which the kingdom of God comes forth. And the kingdom of God is the framework of Scripture. Kingdom gives Scripture its, its, its eschatological shape. And eschatological is just a, a fancy word for that which is future, that which history, that which Scripture is moving towards this end this end goal when the when Christ will be magnified and, and, and the glory of God will be magnified, God will be magnified, and the kingdom of God will be consummated. Scripture progressively reveals and is moving towards the completion of the building, which is the kingdom of God. And the center of Scripture is Jesus, right? So all that Scripture says concerning covenant, concerning kingdom, concerning salvation, finds its culmination in Jesus. Jesus is the covenant-keeping and throne king who has secured the salvation of his people and the kingdom of God as the true and better Adam. Let me just mention two resources before we close this episode. Two resources that I think will be tremendous in helping you better understand both the kingdom of God and the covenants of Scripture uh, are two books I think that are quite readable. The first is Jeffrey, Jeffrey Johnson, The Kingdom of God. You can go to Free Grace Press, and you can find that book there. I'm sure you can also find it on Amazon. Also, Samuel Renahan's book, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom, and that's put out by Founders Press. You can find that on Founders, uh, their website, or on Amazon as well, I'm sure. And the last resource, this would be this would be top, top shelf theology here. <laughs> um, heavy reading, but I, I believe well worth it. Herman Bavinck in his first volume of the Reformed Dogmatics, the Prolegomena is what that one is called, uh, just beautifully talks about what Scripture is, how it relates to the Christian, how it reveals God to the Christian. Um, I would encourage you to go ahead and give a shot and read through that. But let me close with another prayer from the Valley of Vision, continuing on with this theme of Pilgrim Talk to remind us that as we study theology together, as we study God's Word, as we worship God uh, each Lord's Day and we seek to be faithful pilgrims in the midst of the week, 
let me remind you through this prayer from one of the Puritans of this idea that we are on a voyage. The prayer goes like this, at least in part, the first part of it. It says, O Lord of the oceans, my little bark sails on a restless sea. Grant that Jesus may sit at the helm and steer me safely. Suffer no adverse currents to divert my heavenward course. Let not my faith be wrecked amid storms and shoals. Bring me to harbor with flying penance. Whole unbreached, cargo unspoiled. I ask great things, I expect great things, shall receive great things. I venture on thee fully, my wind, sunshine, anchor, defense. The voyage is long, the waves high, the storms pitless, but my helm is held steady. Thy word secures safe passage. Thy grace wafts me onward, my haven is guaranteed. This day will bring me nearer home.